Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, I'm going to talk about me. Me, 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 me. Now, <laughs> can you guys hear my fan? I'm going to talk about um, the uh, the writing process and um, my year. Uh, I, I, um, I had a... I had a funky writing year. It was a very productive writing year. Uh, it was like 2021 was kind of a blah, you know, because obviously for obvious reasons it was a blah. But I, I didn't realize how far down the um, how 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 much of a drop I'd had creatively until I was looking at my uh, completed works over the course of the last three or four years and realized that I had, a, I had an extreme slump in 2021. It was kind of like, it was awful. Um, granted, honestly, that's kind of rude to say because I say that and then I'm going to tell you that I completed and published 413,000 words for the year 2021. So I know it's ridiculous to say that my 2021 sucked for me as a writer. Because that's a, that's a very respectable number. That is five commercial novels in a year. But in 2020, I wrote 984,000 words. So I went from nearly a million to less than half a million over a year. In 2019, uh, my total is weird and not and probably probably not I guess it's accurate I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say it's accurate in 2019 I only did 324,000 words so I, 2020 was crazy 2020 is also the year that I wrote my two Mandalorian fix for the quantum bang and um that's when I also did all the world for rough trade now in 2022 my total for the year <laughs> was 768,000 words. And the reason that I named this podcast The Tiny Goal is because I do set a tiny goal for myself. I don't know that if I... I have the last four years. Not the not five. I couldn't give you five. I don't think I actually... I could probably tell you what I published in 2002. 18, but I couldn't tell you what I wrote and finished in 2018, if that makes sense, Cranky. Um, so, 2019, it was 324,957. And then 2020 was, we're going to do a plus sign here, 984,748 plus. And then 2021, it was 413,789 plus. And then 2022, it was 7, uh, plus 768 to 48, which is 2,491,000 words, basically. And we're going to divide by four. Yeah, 1.9 buttloads. <laughs> so that's the average of 622,000 words, basically. Ish, ish, ish. Um, and I would say that probably 2018 would have been between 350 and 400,000 um, in that range. Because that's, uh, the reason I say that is because my yearly goal for a very long time has been 250,000 words a year. And I don't remember not making that goal 
It'll last two decades. But let's talk about the tiny goal because my daily goal is 500 words. So that's my daily goal. It's 500. And that's it. If I get 500, I am gold. I am awesome. I am so pleased and proud of myself. Truly. 500. 500. Um, and... I have some other goals on the bot we use on Just Right to talk about, um, to not to talk about, to kind of like strive for, but my tiny goal is 500 words a day. Now, on average, if I don't have anything else to do, um, like on, if I don't have, if, if it's not a work day, if it's not a work day, and I do have some work days where I do some stuff that I don't talk about, um, for professional stuff, not writing because I haven't written professionally. And um, well, the last professional project project I published was under my Kira name, so that will tell you it was um, one of those shorts uh, that I did. Um, I don't even remember the title. Well, yeah, Fall for You, but I also did a couple of shorts. Maybe it was that Merman book. But either way, um, that's my last professional published work. I I don't have um, the desire really to publish professionally the way I used to. It's just not there for me. Um, and I don't, in, I don't strive to, um, hurt myself with my craft or with my goals. And that's something that I would, um, recommend to anybody that if you're setting aside time to write, or if you're setting yourself a daily goal or a weekly goal, whichever, you know, is more comfortable for you, that you pick a goal that won't hurt your feelings. And that's the beauty of the tiny goal because it makes you feel accomplished um, and it's not demoralizing if you say, I want to write 10,000 words a month. If that's your goal, that's your goal. You know, make that your goal and don't, you know, don't go down and don't beat yourself down if you don't make it because it's just a personal goal that you've got. If it's 5,000 words a month, that's fine too. You just got to pick out the goal that works best for you that you can accomplish, that you feel like you can accomplish easily. And that's the point. You don't, when it comes to a goal, like with creativity, unless you're getting paid, and that's, and, and there's a different thing. When, when you've already cashed the check, you're, you're in a different headspace than what we're talking about. But when it just comes to being creative and picking out a writing goal for yourself, I want, I want people, I, I, I want you to be happy in your craft and happy in the space that you're creating for yourself. And I think the best way to do that is set a goal that's very manageable that you can accomplish because it's going to make you feel great when you do. So if it's 500 words a day, if it's 1,000 words a week, if it's 5,000 words a month, whatever that little goal is that you set for yourself, when you make it, celebrate it because you've, you, you've done what you set out to do for the month. You've done what, you know, it's just, that's just an awesome thing to do. And also, when you have a tiny goal, if you don't make it, it doesn't feel like a big deal. Like my tiny goal of 500 words a day. If I make it, I'm like, haha, look at me. <laughs> Especially when the bot tells me, I'm like, if, if, if I run a thousand words a day, that bot's going to tell me I'm 200% on my goal for the day. There's something pretty fun about being told you are 200% of your goal. Okay? I'm just saying. Just saying. I don't care if it's 500 words or 5,000 words. Don't set a 5,000 word a day goal for yourself. I'm being for real. Don't, don't ever do that to yourself. Sometimes you have a 5K day, sometimes you don't. But don't put that kind of pressure on yourself because it's just 
awful. It's an awful situation to put yourself in. And it will just, it'll just drag you down and make you miserable and make you hurt and make you sad. And um, then you don't want to write. You don't want to be creative at all. You, you don't want to create um, a space around you to make, to grow, to, to, grow to, to, to be creative. It just, it disappears on you. I've done a 5K a day challenge. Um, and I wrote 5K a day for 52 days. It was a marathon, basically. Um, what it was, was, is there were a group of us and we all were doing 5K a day. And <clears throat> we had put money on this to see who could do it the longest. And it wasn't a lot of money. There were like 10 of us and it was like a $25 buy-in for each one of us, right? So it wasn't like a ginormous amount of money and it wasn't worth the money that winning, it, it wasn't worth winning, that's for sure. Because, I mean, by day 30, I, I and but I didn't win, if you're curious to know. Um, it ended up just being two people by the end of it. And uh, the loser, the last loser, tapped out at 92 days. She wrote 5K a day for 92 days. And she lost. And the person who won took us all to dinner with the money. <laughs> but because like I, cause it, cause it wasn't about the money, right? But um, <coughs> it... Uh, so they they did do ninety three days. They did go to the next day and, and write the five k to so that it wouldn't be a tie, and um, so they could win because winning was very important to them. But again, for them, it wasn't about the money either because they spent all the money on dinner. Um, but yeah, fifty two days, fifty one, fifty one or fifty two days, and um, I mean, it is it was an outrageous it was an outrageous situation. Then yet, then you ask yourself. Or you're going to ask me, well, Kira, how much of that 52 days of writing was usable? About 30%. I put it about 30%. Because there came a point when I developed that syndrome that Jill likes to call, and then, and then, and then, and then. And I'm a plotter, so I don't normally get into that, that, that cycle of and then, and then, and then. But I did. Um, I wrote three books ish in that range um because some some days it was just 5k like to the to the to the dot and some days it was six or seven k um and I, I don't actually remember my total at the end of 52 days i mean it had to be at least it had to be at least 260,000. but i think i might have actually been close to 280 ish it's been a while i mean it's been two decades um i, th I, I think i was around 280 um and I had written uh, two short romance novels, and I'd started a fantasy, uh, a fa a fantasy project. Um, the romance novels I eventually shaped up, edited the hell out of, kept less less than half of each one, and ended up publishing them. Um, the fantasy project is still sitting on my hard drive. Um, I can add. Okay, if I'm on task. I can write between 900 and 1200 words an hour if I'm on task and I'm very oriented. That's rare. Um, on those 5k days 
I would go to work, I would come home, and I would write from 6 to 11, or 6 until I got my 5k. I would say the further I got into it, the less useful it was. I would say that. Um, yeah, I think that a, a, a thousand words, um, even a, a thousand words at every half hour is great. Is, is it sustainable? No. And that becomes the issue. Like, because, you know, I could probably hammer out 1,500 words in a single hour. Could I do it for five hours straight? No. I could not. I absolutely could not. Not on a physical level or a mental level. And that becomes part of it because the, the physicality of sitting still in the same place for five hours and writing, um, even on a keyboard, it, that, that is not sustainable at all okay um you said about 30 percent of it was usable did that break down the, the further you got into it was it first better the the first part of my writing was great i i was on plot my characterizations were tight but it seemed like and because that fantasy project was the last project um it's it was the most it was the biggest casualty of that writing exercise what would I compare my, to my normal writing percentage would be useful? These days, my average cut file. Okay, let's say for, in, like, uh, 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 Unleash Your Demons. Um, 114K, 114,000 words, um, ish. If someone can give me an actual number. I actually probably could give a number because I have my thing open right here. Um, where is the quantum bank? Unleash your, demon, Unleash your Demons was 115,000 words. My cut file for Unleash Your Demons is 6,000 words. So, in the writing and in the editing, I removed 6,000 words from Unleash Your Demons-ish. Around 6,000. It's between 5,000 and 6,000. So, when I'm on plot, when my writing is tight, when my characterization is on point, um... I lose very little at the end of the day. Sometimes I have ditched half of a project and just like fuck it and just put it in a file and started over from like the middle. So there have been times when 50% of a title of, of a project that I started was usable. And there have been other times where, okay, for instance, in A Better Man, The Better Man, which is my first novel in my Gratua series, a Better Man was around 94,000 words in my rough draft. And between my second and my third draft, I went from 94 to 99,000 words. So I actually probably cut less than a percent from draft one to draft two and added to it. So it's just, it really depends on the project, um, how comfortable I am with the material, how well the characterization is going. Um... And also, I'm a very different writer than I was 20 years ago. Uh, when, when number one, I would never in a million years sign up. If my friend said, hey, hey, bitch, you want to have a, have, a, have a contest or a bet where we all put in money in a pool and we're going to write 5K a day until one, until one man's standing, I'd, been like, I'd be like, no, and fuck you for asking. Are you being serious right now? I, there's no way. There's no way I would even... Because... It was an interesting challenge at that point in my life, but now it seems like it was seems like a really deeply unreasonable burden. 
my someone said in their chat room that they're that they did a 12k day i have done a 15k day then i did it right for a whole month afterwards but i think my biggest haul ever as a writer was that through a series of unfortunate events i had to rewrite a novel and i had 30 days to do it ish i had 28 29 to do it it uh i had a hard drive failure and i had sent this is when um, publishers wanted a copy of your work on a floppy disk the the little disk not the big disk the little disk i'm not i'm not that old um so i'd sent a print copy the only print copy i had and the floppy disk and it was seventy-five thousand words on the dot because it was contractual um the publisher never got the package and we couldn't find it it was lost and i had a hard drive failure so i had nothing and i had 30 days ish to um to rewrite it and i couldn't write something else because i had i had signed a contract on spec and when you when you're writing on spec it means you do a proposal um and the publisher expects a certain thing from you based on the spec and not only had i done a, a, a spec proposal um, for this work, I'd also spoken at length with the editor and made notes on what she would have liked to have seen based on the proposal that I had sent. So I couldn't just send them a different book. I had to send them that book with those characters. Yeah, I did get an, I did get an extension. That was the 30 days. Because we didn't find out. I, I knew that my copy was gone. And so I had asked my agent to ask the publisher to send me a copy um, from the disc. And that's when we found out about a week before it was due that there was no book. That they had never gotten the package. And that is the last time I ever, ever sent a package without tracking information. I don't know what was wrong with me. I don't know what was wrong with me. But now these days like, you just email that shit. You know, so it's, it, it's a different ballgame now. It's a different game. Um, but yeah, I wrote 75,000 words in a month. Now, that's actually something that I'm perfectly capable of doing it. You've got to see me do it on Rough Trade. I mean, day in, day out. I don't even know. How how, how big was my, my last Rough Trade? 80. I would actually say, Lady Holder, that I am less productive now than I was during that time period. Um... Because, you know, by, by the time I was being published, I had been writing for over a decade. And I regularly wrote between 75 and 100K every month. Because um, I was trying to make a living. Uh, but I don't recommend it. I think most of that was... Because I'll tell you this. I don't think a lot of that work is good. Now... I'm going to give you guys a pro tip. I'm going to give you a really good. This is like, take this to the bank, okay? Take, take it to the grave with you. Do not ever tell an agent or an editor or a publisher who has contracted you that you think your old work sucks. Because what you're saying is, you have terrible taste and I can't believe you bought this shit from me. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> just, just, you gotta be really careful with that. Because I do think a lot of my 
work from when I was younger is awful. But I've changed, right? I've changed. I've grown. My work didn't change with me. It didn't grow. Um, but don't don't tell a publisher that published you that you think your work sucks. That 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 they published. It, it's just bad. This is bad. This is very bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had a month, month and a half. I don't. I know I got it under deadline and I'm not it's been a very long time but I'll tell you what I fucking hate that book I fucking hate it I've never even read it I they, they sent me author copies and I got a box of author copies I hated the box of my mom unopened I never even opened it I've grown a lot as an author my taste no longer includes my older works <laughs> I've been a lot of writers who were basically forced into that bottom ripper box think that about a lot of their old works. Oh god, I am burning up, you guys. I'm having a hot flash. We're gonna have to turn the fan on. <clears throat> is it, I think that is it easier. I think that yes, that you um that the uh, the more you write, uh the more you the the more work you do on your on your characterization, on your structure, on your narrative, the easier those parts come. Um the physicality of of it all of writing is actually not easier because when I was younger, I could sit at my desk for ten hours and just write away and be okay. I get up, I'll be fine. I sit at my desk for two hours and write. Y'all, I am bent over like an old man trying to get <laughs> trying to get some tea. It stops e it stops being easy to sit in a single place for a long period of time after 40. I mean, it's just like, it's what? <laughs> we, yeah, we did. We are our own worst critic. That is absolutely 100% accurate. But, um, you know, it, it changes. Like, you know, what you find, um really interesting as a writer now is it, it changes a lot I mean even like in like my fandom the scope of my fandom works um what I was attracted to idea wise five years ago a decade ago is much different than what I am um inspired by today um I'm gonna have a fandom anniversary in May I think is it May It'd be 15 years in May that I'll, that I'll have been in fandom. And so, like, the works that I did 15 years ago, um, sometimes I, I, thank you, sometimes I think about, like, editing the pure fuck out of what might have been. But then I kind of pull, pull back a little bit because there are readers who, who love it just the way it is. And I wouldn't want to ruin it for them. So there's that. And also, readers get bit when you edit your own work. I mean, there is still that one person who's really upset about that single line I changed the Sentinels of Atlantis. I don't think she's ever going to get over it. <laughs> okay, so questions. Do you feel a, bi a big sense of accomplishment when you complete a small story as you do when you complete a large one? Um, honestly, sometimes, sometimes, a completed short story feels like I won a fucking gold medal because <laughs> when you have a lot of room to tell a story when you have a 80 120 thousand words to tell a story you've got plenty of room 
for characterization, for your narrative, to tell a story. But when you say, okay, bitch, tell me a story in 15K. Now, there have been times when I put out short works that I was like, oh, yeah. But then there have been other times when I've written a short work that was so tight and so on point and so complete in my mind, it was better than a whole novel. Because the short story is a rapidly dying art form. And when you get it right, when it's bang on, that is amazing. One of the most amazing things you can encounter as a reader is an author who can tell you a story in a thousand words. I mean a, a story. Like a whole story. And so those short works. Writing a really tight complete short work is like yes. <laughs> it's like yeah look at me. <laughs> I'm a fucking boss. Because I mean there there is there, there is that that sense of accomplishment that you've done something that's really hard to do. I mean, anybody can write a scene, you know, a, a, or, a, you know, a chapter and call it a short story. But when you actually accomplish a, a, a short story, it's an entirely different, it's an entirely different thing. It's a whole new animal. How do you feel about the differences between writing short fics with sequels or writing episodes of a larger fic series? A one-shot versus an episode. And what's the difference in plotting and event consequence elements? Um, I like writing um, in the episode format. I really enjoy that event and consequences give and take on the episode format. Um, I'm also really enjoying lately the novella series. You might have noticed <laughs> I've been doing a lot of them. Um, and I've really been enjoying that, that, um, one of the reasons why I enjoy the novella series is it allows you to, well, number one, tell a bigger story instead of just an event and the consequences that you get in the episode. But also if you're doing novellas, you can do different points of view instead of being stuck in a set of POVs. Um, and, uh, that's true in series work too, but I think that when you're doing like a series, like when I did Sentinels of Atlantis, that you, while you can do like episodes that are in various points of view, that you do want to have, for the most part, a central POV character or characters that you work with throughout the series, because that creates a cohesive story. You'd not believe how much talking I'm doing with my hands right now. I'm going to end up with a sore elbow um, from waving my hand around like a crazy person over here. Um, so I do think that when you are, you know, when, when you're structuring your idea, you need to ask yourself, like, how many stories in the story do I have to tell? And are these stories event-based or are they character-driven? Because if you look at the Sentinels of Atlantis, it's spread out over many episodes don't know how many 30 20 I forget um is so the the Sentinels of Atlantis is very event oriented um it's one event in consequence after another as the episodes build to the end you have a novella on the front end and a novel on the um back end and in between you have these episodes and each one of them is kind of like a building block that's building on top of one another to create a whole story I talked before about the Sentinels of Atlantis because the Sentinels of Atlantis, the series itself has a beginning and a middle and an end. It's 20 episodes. Thank you, Star. Um, 
And each episode has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And they all build on one another. And I I tried hard to create this urgency and this momentum leading into the final part. Which originally the search was going to be five episodes. But when I decided to do the search for, I think it was uh, a nano project. I believe I, I, I believe I did it for a rough trade. Yes, I did it for November of 2012's rough trade. When I decided I wanted to do that for um, for rough trade, uh, which I think it was actually still called Naked Nano that year. I don't remember. It, we might have already made this the skip. Yeah. Um, that I was going to take those five episodes and make it a novel. So I had to do some replotting, obviously, because there's a big difference between um, episode arcs and a novel. Um, but it, uh, I really like the structure of Sentinels of Atlantis. I really enjoyed uh, putting it together and creating that, that overreaching. Um, and the reason I did it, straight up, the reason I did it is because my husband had made me watch Babylon 5. And if you've not seen Babylon 5, I'll tell you that Babylon 5 is a masterclass in storytelling. And when you watch it, the way the way he made me watch it, where I watched the movies and the series in order. So he broke it down for me. So I watched Babylon 5 in timeline order versus like release order. So I watched all the movies and the episodes as they should be in the timeline. And... Michael Shosinski threw down. He threw down like a boss. And I I was like, I I like this. I want to do this. Because I a lot of TV at the time, and still mostly today, is very monster of the week kind of thing. And very, very little story arc. Whereas Babylon 5 was just story arc. I mean, you like he just he took you on a fucking journey. He made you cry. He made you fight. He made you love. He made you hate. He made you wave at a guy's head on a pike. Because if I, if I was the only one waving, I don't talk to any of y'all. If it was just me and Veer waving at that head, dudes, I don't even want to talk to you. <laughs> okay, frog. Okay, okay. <laughs> For those of you who don't get that, I'm sorry. But there's an evil, evil asshole character in Babylon 5. And there's a point where Veer the character tells the evil character one day I'm going to see your head on a pike and when I do I'm going to wave at it and he demonstrates the little wave he's going to do and so at the end of the show he actually gets to wave at the little head on the pike stick whatever it was on and I wave too (laughs) in fact I would say most of the Babylon 5 fans waved at that head (laughs) It was foreshadowed. And the good thing about Babylon 5 is that when they foreshadowed something, they fucking delivered. So I, I was, we were all waiting for that head. We were all waiting for that head. And there it was. There it was. We were all like, wave. Wave at it. (laughs) But, so after I watched Babylon 5, um... You do have to pay attention in Babylon 5. You can't turn your head. Because things that happened in episode 1, or even in one of the movies, was going to come back to haunt your ass later. And it was like, dude, you had me at hello. (laughs) What? 
It was, yeah, <laughs> there he is. I loved it. So, but after I watched Babylon 5, I was like, I want to structure an idea like that. I want to tell a big idea like that. And um, eventually, uh, Sentinels of Atlantis um, was born. And I had done one plot, lost that plot, the hard drive failure, um, and replotted. And when I replotted, it was after I'd watched Babylon 5. And so things took a drastic turn. And so, yeah. But these days, I really enjoy the novella. Um, I'm, I really like uh, the work I'm doing in Requiem. It's great. I appreciate the novel, of course. Um, I Some ideas just work better in a novel format, while others lean themselves towards an episode arc, like The Sentinels of Atlantis, or like The Vanguard. Um, I've... I feel like the vanguards serve very well with the episodes um, because it allows me to move around and explore these actions that John and Jack have taken as they've gone when they went back in time and did what they did um, and the choices that they made and the decisions that came out of that and the consequences that are still building on them. And that's easier to tell in an episode format. But one thing I would say about Vanguard and the episode format, and it's also true of Sentinels of Atlantis, that when you're t when you're in an episode format, you have to work hard to build intimacy, because sometimes you can get kind of like narrow focused on the event and consequence. That uh, character intimacy and character growth can take a back seat, so you have to be very careful with it. Or at least I do. It's just one of the things that I I see in my rough draft that I work to correct in the second. You can watch Babylon 5. It's been remastered on HBO Max. So, um, it's it's worth watching. It really is. The, uh, the, um, I can't say the production values hold up. But, don't overlook it. Focus on the story. Focus on the story. Uh, we, own all, um, we own all Babylon 5 as well. The movies episodes we also own that one season series the rangers with the rangers yeah um it's gorgeous absolutely gorgeous uh oh i also say that i probably told that story about my book and the laws of the hard drive before if the details aren't the same it's because i do fudge it a little because i don't want you guys to figure out the name i wrote under professionally so sometimes the details will be a little bit different because i don't remember what I said before, but I also don't want to give the accurate details, if that makes sense. Not that there was any big-ass scandal related to it. No one ever knew but me and my agent that I lost that book. Um, but yeah, um, I honestly, watch in order. Watch Babylon 5 in order. Watch the movies and the series as you're told to do by that article that just got posted by Ravina. You won't regret it. Um, because it's, um, I think the beauty of me watching it the way I did was that I, it, it was just, it was just this big, beautiful ass story that unfolded for me in a series of movies and, um, a TV show. And I never had to wait for the next season. And I had to wait for the movies and I got to watch it in chronological order versus release order. And that was amazing. It was amazing. It was, it was so good. It's so good. I'm gonna suppress that question. <coughs>
a one shot versus an episode in the, okay a one shot can be very satisfying because you tell this story and then you move on and you don't gotta worry about it and you're just like you're done and it's like yay and then you move on then sometimes a one shot comes back and bites you in the ass <laughs> and you get inspired but there's something really awesome about writing a a a story that you don't intend to write a sequel to because there's, there's no pressure on that you're not putting any pressure on yourself to perform or to create something else attached to it because when you're writing in a series there is this expectation that you're actually going to write more in the series i know crazy and even you have that expectation it's insane that is my favorite scene with Delenn when she tells those assholes that only one human has ever defeated <laughs> Bari and he is behind me and you are in front of me <laughs> I was like she's like motherfucker play come on <laughs> you fuck around and find out that's the original fuck around and find out right there <laughs> it's great it's great she's my fucking favorite Although I like Ivanova too. And he, he is behind me and you are in front of me. <laughs> she might have said it the other way around. But it was fantastic, honestly. Honestly, it's just a really good show. The characters are amazing. The writing is fantastic. The, the, the momentum and the arc is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It just, I can't say enough good things about it. Just, it's awesome. I highly recommend it. <coughs> okay. What was the rest of that question? Um, when you're doing a one shot, when you're doing like a, whether it's like 10K or 50K or 100K, this is the only time you're going to tell the story. Uh, sometimes you feel compelled to add shit you don't need. And you get in a mindset of that. And then, and then, and then, and then somehow there's a dead body. How did, how did the dead body get here? That wasn't something I had planned. Who killed this person? Who killed this person? It was you. You killed this person. And why'd you do that? Why'd you kill your character? Now you got a dead body. What are you gonna do with it? <laughs> Star. Don't 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 get her started. <laughs> We're gonna have to put a ban on that. <laughs> Some people just can't hang with comic relief. That's all I'm gonna say. That's all I'm gonna say. Um but that's so when you're doing a one shot you have to be focused on the events that you've decided to use and not allow yourself to go off the rails that's what i would say about that because you are allowing yourself to go off the rails and what do you do now if you're telling a series work you can get away with it a little bit because you have a little more room. But if you're telling a single short story or a single novel and you don't intend to ever go back to it ever again, which is what the definition of a one-shot is, um, going off the rails do does not serve you. Honestly, going off the rails never serves you. It can entertain you, which isn't the same thing at all. We do plenty of things that entertain us that do not serve us. May I present to you the, the Darwin Awards? Entertaining? But not necessarily the best life choices that could be made. I'm just saying. Just saying. Okay. <laughs> Ellie asks, How do you decide the level of terribleness humans or other species have in your fic or in your world building process? I... 
That's a great question. I don't know how to answer it. It's a great question, though. It's great. Um, I think that when you're designing your villain or your protagonist, because sometimes you'll have a protagonist um, in your story who isn't necessarily a villain or isn't necessarily evil, I would say that in Unleash Your Demons that Nick Fury is a protagonist, but I wouldn't say he's a villain. He just has a different set of priorities um, than Tony Stark, which makes him a protagonist. But I don't think Nick Fury is evil. They just have different perspective and perspectives and different goals. And Tony knows things that Nick doesn't know. And vice versa. And so, it creates a different set of circumstances. Oh, antagonist. Thank you, Shadow. Tony... Tony is the protagonist in Unleash Your Demons, and Nick Fury is the antagonist. Thank you. I knew I was getting it wrong, but I couldn't figure out what I was getting wrong about it. You, you, you ever get in that mindset? Like, there's something wrong coming out of your mouth, but you don't know quite what it is? That's where I was. I had a word retrieval problem. I could not, for the life of me, think of what this word was. So I go over to the mod chat, and I said, Hey, you guys, what's that thing that you get for your car that's like the deed to your house, but it's for your car. And there was like this, I, there was this weighted silence while I was waiting for one of the mods to tell me what it was, right? Because I could not remember the word title to save my life. It was just, it was gone from my brain. It was just, you know, and so finally one of them did tell me. And I was like, oh, great, thanks. Because I, is it, but I kind of felt stupid for not knowing it. But sometimes because of my fibromyalgia is and the brain fog, it's just words are gone. They're just completely gone from my head. And then someone will say it, and then it's right back where it's supposed to be. So antagonist. You could have an antagonist that's not evil and is not a villain. Um, but you could also have an antagonist who's an absolute motherfucker. I mean, Voldemort comes to mind as an absolute motherfucker. But uh, sometimes you want a character who is antagonizing, who agitates your main character, who creates um, conflict, who isn't necessarily evil. It's easy to, it's easier actually to just have somebody go completely off the rails and be a total nut job. And they're not have any motivation, they don't have any goals, just be bug nut crazy, right? And because that's easy to do, you see it. Thanos is actually more interesting than the MCU made him out to be. We'll go back. Put a pin in that. We'll go back to it. <coughs> in, like, it's easy to make, like, like I said, it's, it's evil to make a character crazy or evil. But it's more interesting to make a character who's an antagonist, who is a villain, who has motivations that your reader will understand. And maybe even empathize with. They are contrary to our hero's goals. But we get you. We understand. And a prime example of that is and I'm gonna bring up the I'm gonna bring up the H word. Y'all y'all clench up. There are people in the Hannibal fandom who rooted for him and hoped he never got caught. <laughs> we know he's evil. Okay, well not evil, but we know we know Hannibal Lecter is wrong. We know he is fundamentally wrong. Right? But we also kind of want him to live happily ever after with Will Graham in a really nice home. Like in Sweden or something. (laughs) 
and kill the rude. <laughs> Absolutely. But there's another one. I'm going to tell you a story. Years ago, there was a show called Dexter. I'm sure many of you have watched it. Um, and it was about a serial killer. And he uh, had a, a code that he only killed people who deserved it. So he killed, you know, predators, other predators, like uh, sexual predators, you know, pedophiles, rapists, murderers. And so what he was doing was fundamentally wrong. He would take these people, he would kidnap them, and he would kill them because they hadn't got convicted or wouldn't be convicted of a crime. Dark, thank you, Dark. Um, yeah, Dexter was worse in the, in the books. If you've liked the show and haven't read the books, don't read the books. But then he would take them and he would kill them after he told them why he took them. And then he would cut them up and throw them in the ocean. Now, we know, we know it was wrong. I know Dexter's behavior was wrong. But there was a moment in the series when he's driving down the street and he's tired. He's had a hard day. He has a full-time job as a criminalist. And then he has to kill people for a living at night. I mean, it's a, it's a hard not life for Dexter, okay? So Dexter is working his ass off. He's got this asshole he's killed. He's got the parts in the back of his car. He's exhausted. He had a long day. He falls asleep at the wheel. And crashes his car. And the whole time I see this unfolding to me. The only thing I think is, oh my god, don't get caught, don't get caught, you're gonna get caught, you're gonna get caught. <laughs> Don't get caught. <laughs> you can't wreck your car. You're going to get caught. Because <laughs> I didn't want Dexter to get caught. <laughs> so, you can create an anti-hero or an antagonist that your, um, <laughs> that your, that your reader can empathize with and sympathize with. And even in some cases, root for. Uh, and when you do that, it's really interesting. It's really, really interesting. Uh, because people who watch Dexter, they, he's a serial killer. We know he should be in jail. We just don't care. <laughs> and that's, <coughs> that's the beauty of a show like, or a character like Dexter, or a character like Hannibal Lecter, or, or, okay, someone said in the chat room that, it, because we understand it's not real, but you also look at the history of, of a care of of real people like Bonnie and Clyde, who were really bad guys, but they had a fucking fan club who did not want them to get caught, a serious one. I mean, so you know, there we it's in our kind of in, in our psyche to be like, well, you know, I mean, so they they did a few things that were bad. You don't gotta kill them. It'd be okay if they got away. What was that woman, Bambi? Bambi Bombeck? Bambi wasn't her real name, or maybe it was. Um, went on the run. Lived in Canada for years. Um, people didn't want her to get caught. I think she killed her husband. Or she was accused of killing her husband. It's been a while since me and Paula Zahn were on the case on that, on, on that particular case. I, I watched it months ago. Speaking of which, if you've not watched On the Case of Paula Zahn, I highly recommend it. It's very good. So it's a true, a true crime show. Imhotep in the first Mummy movie was the bad guy. And I really wasn't rooting for him. But there, there came a point in Mummy 2 for Imhotep where I felt really bad for him. 
I felt like he was that he was getting a raw deal again, that he had been betrayed again. And then to see Rick and Evie and Rick's telling her to stay back, stay back, just don't, don't stay back. And she's not staying back. She's going to go get her man. On the other side of it, Imhotep was begging her. What was her name? Begging her to come help him. And she was saying no. I cannot say that. Anak Samun, Anak Sunamun. He was begging her to come help him. No matter the danger to her, he wanted her help. And she refused. So it was Anak Sunamun. That's a lot, guys. That's a lot for me. I dare you to find one drunk person who could say that. <laughs> so, there was this epic love between Rick and um, Evie. But what was happening between Imhotep and Anox and Amun, and Amen and Amun, was not the love they thought it was. He was willing to risk her being hurt to save himself, and she was unwilling to risk herself to save him. So they had destroyed their uh, th- their lives in the past for nothing more than lust because there was no love there. It's very sad. It was, it was very sad, but a good movie. It's a good movie. I, I enjoyed it. And that, and that kind of characterization is really interesting. So, um, I think that when you're looking at your level of, of evilness or terribleness, you need to think about, how much external conflict you need. That's what it boils down to. Like if you, if you need an over the top external conflict. Like Voldemort. What kind of story are you telling? In the first one, in the first mummy movie. Imhotep is very. He's a very over the top external force. Um, he's a supernatural t- external force. Working against them. Uh, and so when you look at that. You know, and that's the, the that's the genre. You're looking at the genre too. Like in a romance novel, you don't need Voldemort or you don't need Imhotep. Um, you know, if I'd actually watched that show re- movie recently, I probably could say it. Um, but when you're looking at a romance novel or um, a science fiction novel, you're not going to want this over the top supernatural villain like Imhotep or Voldemort or you know a giant asteroid. You might want it in science fiction. A knock soon na men. I thought moon was at the end. A knocks and a moon. A knocks and a moon. I think I think that's pretty close. I fuck it is. Okay. Mission accomplished. I still don't think a drunk person could say that. <laughs> so when it comes to like with nine one one, one of the more uh one of the more natural options for um an external um pressure uh, for Eddie is his parents because they are on the show, a an external pressure point for him. Uh, Shannon is also another one. His his estranged wife, um, and his service in the army becomes another external force that you can use um, to shape his character. I think that I I would not consider Anna an external. Oh, because of the muffins. Well. I mean, the muffins. There's a case to be made. We, we might need to call our solicitor. And by that, I mean Tier Warheim. <laughs> Muffin Gate. <laughs> but I think that 
when I think about Anna as a character, I tend to write her as a symptom of Eddie's trauma versus an actual problem in her own right. Because he's flailing. He is he is he, he is in a full man flail. Um justifiable justifiable. His kid is traumatized. He's traumatized. His 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 wife has been killed. Um he's spiraling and it's one hit after another. And then he gets shot in the street by a fucking sniper. No one expects to get shot in the street by a fucking sniper. It isn't something you expect to happen. So there are all these things keep happening. And I think his relationship with Anna is a symptom. And in her perspective, she was thinking she was getting one thing, but she was getting nothing. I mean, because she thought she was dating this put-together, attractive, single father, first responder, when in fact she was dating a hot mess. A literal hot mess. And she didn't know it. She didn't know about his PTSD. She didn't know about the street fighting. She didn't, I mean, she didn't know any of this. She didn't know what she was getting into. An emotionally constipated hot mess is what, yeah, that's what Eddie Diaz is at this point in his life. And he's trying to date somebody. He had no business trying to date somebody. <coughs> so, you know, you can look at uh, an external force like Anna as being a, um, so you twist it and you see, you know, and I've seen some people do some crazy shit in fandom with her character from like, like stalking and kidnapping to murder plots. I mean, it just, just takes this. It runs the gamut. And I, I have to admit, I'm going to admit, sometimes it's really amusing to go over to AO3 and to read the Anna Flores bashing tag. Because it's always, there's always somebody in there being crazy. <laughs> it's, it's completely, it just, it gets so unrealistic that it becomes, I will admit, Without any shame that character bashing is one of my favorite things in fandom. The only thing better than a Ron Weasley bashing fic is a fic where somebody bashes Ron Weasley and Dumbledore. <laughs> Just give it to me all. Give it all to me. <laughs> I fucking love it. I fucking love it. But so, when you're looking at the level of terribleness you need from your antagonist, you need to look at what serves your plot. And what you don't want to do is create a situation or a character, an external situation or a character that your main character cannot overcome. The reader came into Harry Potter knowing intrinsically that Harry Potter was going to save the day. That's the genre. He's the main character. Things might get hard. Things might get sad. Things might get terrible. But Harry Potter is going to win. So when we get a true introduction to Voldemort, we knew, in the end, eventually, he would die. Because that is the genre. When you're writing a romance, your reader expects a at least a happy for now ending. They prefer a happily ever after. What I've noticed in fandom is that when you give them a happily ever after, you get more requests for sequels than you do if you give them a happy for now. Let me explain that. 
Blank Space is a Harry Potter post-Hogwarts story that I wrote. It's Harry and Hermione. They end on a happy for now. It's not happily ever after. He's got two kids. She's agreed to marry him at some point in the future. Oh, thanks, Mrs. Knotts. I really enjoy Blank Space. Um, but it's a happily for now. I've never had a reader demand a sequel to Blank Space. All the world. There's a story about Ragnarok and Lenore time traveling and the consequences of that time travel on Harry and Hermione um, and what happens to them um, afterwards. And it ends with an epilogue of Harry and Hermione having two children, living their best lives. Hermione, they have a son. They've just had a little girl. Um, they're about to fight uh, the annual Garden Gnome Rebellion. And everything is right in the world for Harry. He has a family. He's in love. He's in love with his wife. He's in love with his kids. He's in love with the world. He has everything that he could possibly want. I get a demand for a sequel for all the world at least once a month and a half since I posted it. So, <laughs> the moral of this story is, is giving your reader a happily ever after does not guarantee you a lack of harassment. I don't know what the difference is between the two when it comes to that. Except for the fact, okay, there are a couple that are like happy for now stories that I've written. Blank Space, blank space is one of them. Um... I would see, a happily ever after would be All the World and Darkly Loyal. The two books I get the most requests for sequels for. And I don't know what anybody thinks I could do with a sequel to Darkly Loyal. They killed everybody. <laughs> There's nobody left. There's nobody left to kill. They're all, they're all dead. <laughs> I mean, There's nobody left. Dude, don't you dare, Frog. Don't you dare. I guess I could go back in time and do it again. Only better. <laughs> it was more vigor. But yeah. I mean, it is really stunning that the two stories... Uh, because an epilogue really means I'm done. Y'all, I am 100% done. And so it was... And I, I, I did get the most requests for a sequel for all the world. And some people, oddly, would be perfectly happy if I wrote a 90k Garden Gnome Rebellion. <laughs> Just, I don't know what I would... I don't know I, I don't know what exactly that would look like. But <laughs> people would be like, yay! Garden Gnome Rebellion. <sighs> of course, then I would have to figure out exactly what the Garden Gnome Rebellion siege engine actually looked like. <laughs> <laughs> down in Fraggle Rock. Oh, but yeah, so. I think that just, it depends on your genre, is what I was getting at, about, like, you know, what level of evil do you need? But no matter what level of evil you put into your work, what you must keep in mind is that don't put anything, don't put any obstacle in the way of your characters that you don't already know how to solve. Yeah, that's our sage, siege engine, but what would a garden gnome siege engine look like? What would they think would be important? What would they be using for ammo? Carrots? <laughs> potatoes? They, they would be using potatoes. They would absolutely 100% be using potatoes. 
Who knows what a garden gnome is thinking? Cabbage. Cabbage is pretty hard. That's a good choice. Cabbage is, yeah. It's very dense. It's a good choice. Very good choice. Gotta take down the defenses for their for the garden patch. They, they don't get to go in. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah. So, don't ever put an obstacle down in front of your characters that they can't overcome. That you don't already know the solution to. Because that's the road to um, not being able to finish your work. Because you'll get frustrated and you'll be like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? And you didn't figure that out in advance. So, you're screwed. Until you are showering six months later and you're like, oh... Oh, okay. And then you have to get out of the shower real quick and write that down. And yes, I'm speaking from experience. Oh, Edie. I don't know. I don't know. Is there a character you have struggled to capture their character or voice when writing? Absolutely. I struggled so much with Eddie Diaz that I dedicated myself to writing a whole bunch of shorts featuring Eddie Diaz to figure him out. You might have noticed a whole bunch of shorts on my on my site of 911. Um, that, that was me exploring Eddie. I'm trying to figure out my Eddie voice um, and what I could do with it because I was really struggling. I was writing. Um, hold on, I'll tell you. I was writing. I was writing Honey Trap, and I was having a hard time with his voice. And I was also writing Eight Weeks for the Quantum Bang, and those are both Bucket Eddie stories. And neither one of them were working the way I wanted them to work. And so I started writing all these shorts to to explore Eddie as a character. Um, everyday kind of love, bi-theoretically, um, and uh, Candyman, the, the, the Shape of You, Pinch Hitter. All of those came from me trying to get Eddie on lockdown. Um, and so that's where all those things came from. I... I like to explore the sexuality of, of characters. And <clears throat> when I approached him as, a, as as demisexual, it really worked for me. Uh, I can't say I'd write him that way every time. I don't think it will always work. But one of my favorite stories that I wrote with Eddie was um, Love Comes Around. Which he's a sentinel and he's demisexual. Um, and... <laughs> No, they're all written. They're all written up. And so it was like, that was really, really like a turning point for me when I wrote Love Comes Around. Uh, that, so I was writing Eight Weeks, Honey Trap, and um, Love Comes Around. And then um, I did Intangible for Rough Trade. And so it, I, I kind of solidified how I felt about Eddie during those, during those works. Um I do think that I love Eddie the same reason I love John Shepard. Yes, because they love Buck Rodney. Um, I do love John Shepard because me and John Shepard have a lot in common. We both love Rodney McKay. <laughs> just, just to put that out there. Um, I, but I like Eddie for different reasons. Also, I I like um his journey in fatherhood, you know, I've, I've got daddy issues. Um, so I really enjoy that, his fatherhood, because he's the first character I've ever had uh, outside of Patrick Shepard where I felt like, where there's a canon kid that I can work with. Um, um, and of course, John's a grown man, so it's a, it's a different dynamic with him and Patrick. And I think it's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed writing um, Where Angels Fear, um, Fear to Tread. I got to explore Jack O'Neill as a father. Um, and, and his relationship with Charlie and 
also Esther. And so I really enjoyed it for that reason. Um, team daddy issues always. <coughs> but all those little shorts I was writing on. So, so we, if you're having a problem finding a character and their voice, the best way that you can, um, do that to, to like really explore their voice is, um, and, and in their narrative is to write short stories because that's where you're going to find, um, room to, I really had a problem coming into writing eight weeks because I felt like I had buck on lockdown, but Eddie was a cipher and it was like, I was really struggling and it only got worse when I was picking up Honey Trap and then I tried again and I tried again and I had all these stories and I needed to finish eight weeks for Quantum Bang. So it was like, yeah, I was grinding on it and it was really frustrating. So what, so don't do what I did. Don't try to throw out some big ass projects. Go little first because I had to stop what I was doing and go back and write these little short stories so I could find Eddie's narrative and where I was comfortable in my portrayal of Eddie um, so that I could go back and fix eight weeks. Because eight weeks, the rough draft of eight weeks, um, Eddie is very flat. He's 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 a... He's very one-dimensional in the rough draft of eight weeks, which is not good because it makes that later on in the book, there's a scene where he has to, he fights off a home invader and it is a very, um, it's a harsh moment for him as a character. And I think that because I had him do what he did on the page, on the screen for the reader to see, that the reader had to have some emotional investment in him. Otherwise, it would have, the scene wouldn't have hit the same way. And so I needed to kind of open him up and open up how he was feeling about, about Buck and about Colin and about having this, this new baby in his life and, and recognizing his feelings and admitting what was going on between him and Buck and really acknowledging what he wanted because I think that in a lot of ways, Eddie has been reactive his whole life. Um, that he's not, that he's always reacting to one situation after another. Um, and that's not good. It's, it's not good to always be reactive instead of proactive. You, you, you can't spend your whole life just reacting to what other people do to you. Because um, it creates a very unhealthy mental mindset for yourself. And I think Eddie was in that space for a very long time. So for me, exploring him as a character meant figuring that out. And once I figured that out, I had to figure out how to get him out of that so that he could grow. Because you don't want your character to be static. You, you, want, you want growth to happen. You want your character to grow and change and move in your narrative in such a way that they remain from, familiar to your reader. But also, they are better for what you have done at the end. At least that, that, that's my goal. That's always my goal. Um, one of my favorite characterizations of Eddie that I've done was in Intangible. He's, he's doing something that he loves. He's, he's confident. He's, um, he's very sexy and um, intense. And he's not quite like... He, there, there are not in canon circumstances. So he's not, he's not the same as he would have been you know, in canon. So he, this is a... A paranormal AU. He's he's 
really invested in his craft and his artistry and I love it. I, I think it's so sexy and so compelling. I really do. Um, so, um, of course, my favorite part of Intangible was actually Jax. And I w will accept no criticism. <laughs> Ever on that subject. <laughs> He's a badass. <laughs> Every time I think about that one scene where I introduce him, he goes, I'm a badass, Buck. And he smacks his fist against his hand he's 12 he's 12 inches tall <laughs> or 14 sorry he's 14 inches tall <laughs> but he's a badass and he's bragging later about standing on his enemies and christopher's like yeah right put on your seatbelt <laughs> he doesn't care <laughs> he's my favorite he is my favorite this is tom ford <laughs> speaking of that was some really entertaining research, looking at beautiful models and suits. <laughs> it hurt nothing. <laughs> oh, the Tom Ford? About him wearing designer suits? I don't know. It, it wasn't in my plot. But when I came to that scene and... He was naked on the sink and Buck told him to put on some clothes. I thought, well, what would he put on? And then I paused. Sometimes you have these moments when you pause and you're like, well, what would he put on? And I decided he was going to wear a bespoke <laughs> designer suits. It's just, just in there. Just in there. Well, his whole, his character, I knew, see, always in my work when I'm going to have things that are difficult or hard, I'm going to have moments that are difficult for the characters, difficult for the reader, I like to find an element of stress relief or comic relief in Jax's case where he's going to appear periodically in moments to break up the narrative, to to take the tone of a, of a scene or or a moment and change it just a little bit um, so that it's not all hard. <laughs> there, there are no actual pictures, like a, just depictions of what I think that he looks like. Um, basically, he looks like a little devil. He's got red skin and he's got horns and he's got feet like a goat. Hooves. He has hooves. Um, he has actual hands and a tail, and his tail has a little triangle on the end. Um, I actually did have a picture that I downloaded from myself that I did not put on my website um, of something that I thought kind of fit what I was imagining. And I will post it for you guys, but it's not something I was ever going to put up on. Um, oh, that's his house. You guys can look at his house. That's Jax's house. And... I mean, I'm going to put this up for a while, but if anybody who has, like, who's sensitive to demons and stuff, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put this behind, I need, I need to put this behind a spoiler. So, okay, I'm going to spoil it, because it is a little demon, so don't, don't look at it if you're, um, that's his Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired tiny house. Anyways, <laughs> so, like I said, when you're, when you're, when you're going to have heavy topics, and I knew I would because of the ghost hunting, because I would eventually like to write some more in that verse. Um, and I knew that they were going to be on in circumstances that were very sad and very hard, and they were going to see things and hear things and know things that were difficult, that I needed a way to lighten the load in the narrative. 
um, and Jax was Jax was that solution. He is um, he's sarcastic, he, but he's also very powerful. When he talks about laying down a whole army, he meant it. He is a weapon of mass destruction, um, and he really did kick a whole hellhound's ass. <laughs> so he's he's um, but he's also funny and invested and um so that says a lot about you reaper so does your name actually now that i think about it yeah a little mini hellboy well of course hellboy was a demon right or half demon um he's a weapon of math destruction yeah and he adores children he adores christopher um he's very uh, protective of christopher's protective of g and it's so you want when you're going to have topics that are difficult and mean and hard and sad. You want to have a, a way in your narrative to kind of lighten the load for yourself and for the reader. And other examples of this outside of Jax would be Avery in um, Finding Atlantis. Um, Willa in my Gratua series. Uh, she, Willa actually serves several purposes in The Thousand Mile Road. She is a moment of light, and she is also a a method by which I I softened Den's um, relationship with droids because Den Jaren hates droids when we when we first meet him in canon. Uh, he is more likely to destroy a droid than anything else. Um, he blames them for the deaths of his parents because the empire used droids to attack the village that he was in and his parents were killed and he was rescued by a mandalorian and grew up as a mandalorian as a result and so when we meet then he is not he is really really vicious <laughs> with droids i mean he kills ig11 of course ig11 had that coming because he was trying to kill the baby and that's just not on we don't kill baby yoda uh, but he's just really opposed to, to droids in general. And, <coughs> I'm sorry. Oh, give me a second. I, my throat just got stupidly dry all of a sudden. One of the things that I wanted to do across the, the series is to soften his relationship with droids and also to give him some character growth. So Willa is... A little bit of comedy, a little bit of care. She's also kind of like their third kid, but what she is is a representation of of a droid that then can learn to accept and trust. In Darkly Loyal, that element is Winky and Dobby in their Death Eater contest. It is that served two purposes. One, I was really I was tired of doing that myself and i'm like how can i get rid of all these asshole death eaters without actually writing all these scenes out or having a big giant death eater attack and rocks falling and killing everybody this is just really frustrating so i delegated that's right shadow i delegated that to winky and dobby in the background and it created i had to replot a little bit take out some stuff because i didn't need it anymore um but it created a a I thought was funny thing. Um, especially with the with the volcano that, that 
and the Hephaestus worship, because that was just fucking hilarious. Is that, is that how you say that? We're going to go down that road again, because Julie ain't here to tell us. Hephaestus. Hephaestus worship. <coughs> because that just really struck me as really funny. And just just the whole idea of it. And I know, I know it's awful. I know, okay? I'm aware that what they did was not kind. Um, but Dr. Lowell isn't a kind fic. It's crack taken seriously. Um, but those moments where you create, uh, when you take a little bit of humor into a situation that is very dark and very upsetting, um, and very sad at some points, it, it lightens the load for you as a reader and as a writer. Um, so that's why things like that happen. That, that's why Avery exists. That's where Quark came from and what might have been, um, that's where Willa is, is rooted, where Winky and Dobby's contest, and of course Avery, you know, um, I pants the penguin. Because when I was writing Finding of Atlantis, Finding Atlantis, which is really an exploration of, um, of grief, and it was really starting to hurt my own feelings, to be honest. Um, it was very, it was, it was, there was, there was some, it was just really hard to get in that headspace and write that, and so... I was like, okay, I need to lighten my own load. How do I do that? And I pants the penguin. Avery appeared nowhere in the first zero draft of that story. So then I had to go, after I introduced Avery, I had to go back in and do some finagling on my plot. And then eventually I added one or two scenes during the second draft, I think, to kind of even it out. Because I wrote Finding Atlantis on Rough Trade. And so... I had to back up in my narrative and add him in a couple other places so that he just didn't appear out of nowhere like he did in the rough draft. <laughs> he might have had to pick out new volcanoes because they might have. Because honestly, honestly, when the uptick went up in uh, worship, you have to think that the Department of Mysteries and their counterparts internationally started investigating that. So here we are. Here's some researchers from the Italian Department of Mystery, Department of Mystery, um, up on top of a volcano, thinking, "Okay, <laughs> what the hell?" <laughs> I actually have a penguin on my desk to this day, um, that uh, I he's actually. I I was in a uh I was in a cracker barrel and I picked him up and I was playing with him. He's a he's one of those TY toys, uh Velvet Eye. He's a little penguin, he has big blue eyes. Um and I was in line at uh Cracker Barrel. We we were gonna check out and um I I, I picked it up and I kept playing with him. And I put him down, I picked him up, put him down, put him and then my mom grabbed it. Because I kept picking it up and putting it back down. And put it on the counter and paid for it. And then she handed it to me in the car. And I, she's like, what is it with you and that penguin? I said, it's Avery. And she doesn't get it. But she got it for me anyway. So I do have an Avery. It's a beanie baby. Someone's telling me, Shadow. Yeah, thank you, Shadow. I couldn't remember the I couldn't remember it for the life of me. So I have a beanie baby penguin on my desk. But yeah, sometimes you need that, that comic relief. Or that moment of brevity um in your mine has little black feet but it's very similar to that otherwise 
um, to kind of just lighten the load for your reader. Because uh, we, we've all read fics that were, yes, that one, the second one. It is exactly that one. I have that one. Um, that just drag you down and make you hurt and are so sad. And there's just no end in sight. And you don't know how you're going to get through it. And you're 200k in. And you're like, oh my god, I'm going to die. I can't stop reading. I can't stop reading. But it's so sad. And you've been ugly crying for two days. I'm not speaking from experience, obviously. <laughs> but I don't like to hurt people with my fic. <laughs> so even when I'm writing something dark or something kind of sad, I, I want to create a circumstance where there is a moment of of uplift and, and happiness that my readers can end on. So I try to never leave a story in a bad place as a result, because I don't want people to come away from my stories. Just unbearably sad. If that, if that makes sense. My 911 OCs. I am particularly attached to Cristobal Solace. He is my favorite. Of course I cast the, the character, the actor who plays Mando in the role. It's Pedro Pascal. Pascal? Was that, was that right? Is that right, Pascal? I'm losing my mind. Um, anyways, uh, I really like Cristobal. He is um, pretty exciting. I'm going to use him probably in one of my big moxies next year. Uh, I'm, th I'm thrilled with the Cristobal pairing with him and Lou Ransone. I like it a lot. Um, I find it very exciting. Thomas Marshall, who was the main character in my story that I posted yesterday for Vibrant Autumn, uh, Easy Like Sunday Morning. And Easy Like Sunday Morning, for those of you who don't know, is a Lionel Richie song. Just put that out there for you. Um, and I, Thomas, I really enjoy Thomas. I've, ha I've had him in a couple of stories in the background. And I'm really enjoying his character. Um, he was raised by a single mom. He loves his mama. Um, and he, you know, he just, he just, he was, he's a former Marine, he's a former Marine, he did, he did four years in the Marines, came home, um, and, uh, he's just, he's just doing his thing and living his life and really not sure when his guide will come along, but his mom told him not to stress about it, so he's not stressing it, he's just living his life, and Christopher is his favorite human being on earth. And he's just, you know, I just, I, I really enjoy his character a lot. And Oscar Fuentes, Cosmo, has appeared in the background of several of my stories as well. Um, I really like him too. Uh, he is, uh, his parents are both living. He has an uncle that you guys kind of met in the story um, who, um, who lives in Mexico. He is, uh... He honestly, I, I gave him something that I, that I, a lot of my friends went through is that they went to school for one thing, and ended up doing an entirely separate thing. Um, and so I was like, you know what? Because I wanted his nickname to be Cosmo, and I'm like, well, how do I get him there? What is a realistic, um, consequence? How does he get the name Cosmo? And I thought, well, obviously he got a degree in um astrophysics or astrology or not astrology, astronomy. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? How did he end up being a firefighter? And it was like that. It's just like this thing that kind of like spun out of me because I wanted to give him this nickname of Cosmo. Um, yeah, and also the actor that I picked is beautiful. I think that when I, 
Um, for a long time, I used the Sentinel Guide Center. So when I moved to like the, the concept of the Burton Foundation, I wanted to create an organization that was um, was founded in the uh, the advocacy for advocacy for Sentinels and Guides um, who work hard to protect them and educate them and who's on the spot. Um, but it can also be kind of sometimes intruding. Like, because they they have these principles of we want to help, we want to help, we want to help. Not everybody wants your help. <laughs> you know? So, it's like, I don't want to give the impression in my works that I'm thinking, that I've, that I've kind of shaped the Burton Foundation to be evil. They're not. Just sometimes they're a little overbearing in their desire to help. And not everybody wants their help. Because... <laughs> you know, that's just the way it, it goes. And I've used it also in my Stargate work. I used it in um, Heart of the Lion. I think I did the Burton Foundation. Uh, I think I actually, yeah, I did. Because I was getting tired of having two SGCs in Stargate. It was really frustrating to have an SGC and then a Sentinel and Guide Center. So I made the Burton Foundation. Or I thought the Burton Foundation. I'm not sure if I'm the first person to ever use it. I don't remember anybody else using it. That doesn't mean they didn't. That just means I have fibromyalgia and I have forgotten. That's the breaks. One of my favorite moments in Love Comes Around. Is when Christopher offers to When Buck offers to take Christopher to JP JPL where um, Karen works to take a tour because of the space thing and Eddie's like well maybe I want to go but then he's like yeah we're going to take all the kids and Eddie's like maybe I don't want to go <laughs> because he doesn't want to go there with all the kids <laughs> maybe I don't want to go <laughs> because that's a moment where I think that there's a little difference between Buck and Eddie and that where Buck would thrive in the chaos of all those children going to JP JPL together um, which is Jet Propulsion Lab, by the way. That's a real place. And they really did, like, build all the rockets and shit for the space program. And all that shit. It's really awesome stuff. You should, you should check them out. They're really cool. Um, it, uh, what AJ said, but I'll, but I'll do that in a minute. Um, but it was, it explains where, like, where Buck would thrive in the chaos of having all those children in one place at the same time. And A's like, that's a whole lot of note from me, dog. <laughs> I'm not about that. <laughs> this man's been in combat. He's going to be a firefighter. And yet, <laughs> he does not want to do a field trip with a bunch of children. Um, the Burton Foundation comes from, in the Sentinel show, Blair based his work on Sentinel research on a, on a paper or a thesis written by Sir Richard Burton. So when I was thinking about what kind of foundation would have come out of that history, Burton Foundation obviously came to mind. And like I said, I don't know if I'm the first to ever do it. I don't think I don't think so. I just don't remember ever reading it. That, 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 that doesn't mean I didn't. It just means it's been two decades and I don't know. Um, but that was my genesis. It's probably everybody's genesis who's ever used it. it that it just it makes sense. Um, when you're developing your character's voice, what kind of things do you take into consideration, and what kind of choices do you make? Well, first and foremost, what is my character going to be used for? What purpose are they serving in the narrative? I don't like to put OCs in spots in my stories where a canon character will do. 
on the other side of it, I don't like to twist a character into filling a role that should be filled by an OC. Take the character of Thaddeus Banner. A lot of times I put him in places in my Harry Potter works where I could not have put a canon character effectively. It just wouldn't work. Either because of, like, the thing about, like, especially in Harry Potter is that the characterizations that were done for, like, all the adult characters are so concrete that readers get wrapped around the axle. Like, I could not have put Remus Lupin in the role that I gave Thaddeus Banner in any spot that I gave Thaddeus Banner. Readers would have been like, what? What are you doing? What? What? Are you sure about this? What? So, because of that, when Thaddeus Benner got introduced, he was accepted by the reader, um, like, like on a surface level on, and in a, like an internal level, because they recognized in the back of their mind that no canon character could fill the spot that this, that this character is currently occupying. So, it was a very organic inclusion in the story. It made sense that he was there because they couldn't have put, they couldn't put any other character in it. So when you're when you're designing your characters, when you're when you're creating OCs, you need to ask yourself, what's this character going to do? Can a canon character do it? And if the answer is no, then you have to decide your character. Who are they? Where do they come from? What's their purpose? And sometimes that purpose is simply the guy behind the bar or the lady managing the hotel. And you don't need to know a lot about them. But when you do need to know a lot about them, and when you're creating an ensemble cast like I did in um, Stargate, like I did in Harry Potter, where I'm creating, like, you know, Randolph Rampart and um, um, Gerard Desaad, you, you have to decide what kind of um, influence they're going to have in your world and what kind of influence they're going to have on your characters and what, surf and what purpose do they serve. And you also need to figure out what your intrinsic characteristics are so that when you move this character into a different work, they're recognizable. And the more recognizable they are, the more comfortable your, your reader will be with your use of them. Which is why I think, honestly, that one of the reasons why Fireborn was so well received by my readership is that Roselle had been repeatedly introduced to the reader in various scenes. Um, throughout my Harry Potter work. So when he appeared as a main character, there wasn't a lot of stumbling outside of the whole Harmony readers who just can't stand it when Harmony isn't the focus of my work. Um, so with a character like Tyr Warhide, the, the, the same thing happened. He'd been introduced many times to the reader that we that they knew who he was, they knew what he was about. Um, getting his perspective wasn't uncomfortable. So... I think it's best if you're going to work with an OC character that you put them in the background first. Um, I don't think you would have been excited to read the story I put out yesterday if you hadn't already met Thomas before. And um, you'd have been like, what the fuck are you doing, Kara? Who's this? I don't care about this. <laughs> I mean, even if you clicked on it out of charity, you'd have been like, girl, what are you doing? <laughs> Who the fuck is this? But because Thomas had been introduced before several times, um, I think that, that when you saw it, you're like, oh yeah, okay, click. Let me, let me see what he's about, what he's doing, what's he up to. Because he had been introduced before. Um, but if you don't intend to ever use an OC as a main character, that's not something you need to really worry about or, or consider. Um, but 
you need to know as much about your OC as you do to make them functional in your environment. Because if they're not functioning in their purpose, they're going to be a distraction and they're going to drag your narrative down. Um, you want to create a character who is, who is uh, right for their circumstances. And you, but you don't want to elevate them. You don't want to elevate a character above their ability to be useful in your narrative because then you've you've created a hot mess. So you know it's okay to know that your character went to so and so high school and took this person to the prom and got laid on this day and you know it, it, it's okay if you know what their favorite book is, but your reader probably doesn't need to know. I think that people who in fandom who complain about original characters. It's because they're in fandom and they expect a certain thing. They don't want to be surprised with an original character. They have an expectation when they're reading a fandom work, they're going to get the characters that they love in the circumstances that they're seeking, and that's all they want. They don't want an OC to have any focus. Uh, they'd rather OCs not even be mentioned because that is the fandom space that they're in. And when they want to read original characters, they go read original work. But when they're in fandom, they want that comfort of these characters they already know and love. If that makes sense. It's about expectations. Sometimes, like, I'll get on, like, I'll turn Netflix on and I'll put on, like, uh, Midsummer, Midsummer Murders. Now, I have watched every season of Midsummer Murders at least four times. But sometimes I'll just click on season one, episode one, and just let it run in the background. Because it's not going to surprise me at all. And I appreciate that. Of course, every time I do watch it, it reaffirms my belief that small British villages are full of murderers and sexual deviants. So there's that. But your mileage may vary. Next question. You've mentioned before when writing a short story that if you wrote one more sentence, you'd have to write 100k. What fix have you written where you'd really had to intentionally keep yourself from writing that sentence? And have you written any fix that were intended to be shorts that ended up full-on novels? Um, <clears throat> so there's a Hobbit fic that I wrote. Um, is my title Accidental Dragon Slayer? Yeah, okay. Because Jilly wrote one too, and I forget. And hers was something. And then and then Lady Holder wrote one. Belling a Dragon, I think was Lady Holder's. Um, <clears throat> and... If I had written one more sentence of Accidental Dragon Slayer, I would have, I would have, I would have had to stop and plot, because I had a tiny plot for that. Because obviously it was just a short, right? Um, and J I forget what Jilly's was called. Something I forget. But Lady Holder's gonna find it for me in a second, I'm sure. Um, hers is called an unusual milady. Malady, milady. Look at her using words I can't pronounce. Milady, malady, milady. Malady. An unusual malady. Okay. Um, and it's all three stories that have, have the same prompt. Where is that Bilbo accidentally killed Smog when he went to get him. When he went to get the Arkenstone. And the, the ramifications of that is that's what happened. Um, so when I wrote mine, I thought to myself, I need to stop. I've, I've reached my final little plot point. Thorin has made his feelings clear to his little dragon slayer. They're going to get married. I need to stop right now. I need to stop. So I did. Because if I had not stopped writing, I would have had to stop writing to go plot. It would have been on. There would have been no stopping me. It would have been a lot. 
Now, there's another one. It was a Hawaii Five-O fic. Why the Hell Out at Pearl? Now, Why the Hell Out at Pearl is a short. I wrote it as a short. I fulfilled my little plot points that I wrote down on that little post-it note. And that's all I did. And I had to stop. Because if I hadn't, I'd have been zero drafting a whole damn novel. That is to tell you that about four weeks ago, I zero drafted that whole damn novel. <laughs> so, just I'm putting it out there. So there will come a point when Way the Hell Out at Pearl will stop being a short story and become a novel. Because yes, there have been moments where I'm like, fuck, why did I stop? Why did I stop? Because it would have been so good. Um, and that's the one. And so eventually I hope to be able to expand on that and to write something um, to, to expand on it and, and write something bigger. Because I did. I, I, I zero drafted. And the zero draft for Way the Hell Out at Pearl is 15,000 words. For reference, the zero draft of Unleash Your Demons was 22,000 words. Just to give you a reference. And Unleash Your Demons ended up being 115k. So I'm right now my zero draft of Why the Hell Out at Pearl is bigger than the actual short Why the Hell Out at Pearl on my site. So there's that. Have I ever wrote something that I regretted not doing short? Well, I'm a wordy bitch, obviously. It, have I ever written a long work that I wished I'd written as a short story? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. No, no. When I wrote, someone asked earlier if there was something that I did stop and replot and continue writing and the answer is yes and that's the vanguard when i first thought of the vanguard it i only had um a little idea about john and jack losing everything and going back in time and i was going to write a little short story where they make the decision and they do it and they wake up in the past and it was basically going to be about 10k and it was going um, to end with John coming to the mountain um, and starting his career at the SGC a lot sooner than later. Uh, and uh, in the original draft, um, neither Rodney nor Daniel ever got their memories back. And I was writing the scene between when Jack came home and he was following Charlie around the house while Charlie told him about his day. And I thought... Why did I think that I could write 10K of this and be happy with it? So I tore apart what I had um, plotted and I took it apart. Um, because I realized when I was writing that particular scene that even though Jack was going to get his son back, he was never going to get his Daniel back. And that what I was writing was actually really fucking depressing the shit out of me. Because Rodney was going to be the same. John was going to not have Rodney. And I was like, why did I do this to myself? What's wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Why am I like this? And so I stopped and replotted and that's how the Vanguard happened. It went from 110k to ever how many words it is currently. Um, and I don't normally set out to write angsty shit like that. I don't. So I don't even know where it came from, to be honest. Um, but I am kind of in love with saving Charlie O'Neill. I have to admit that. I, I'm, I'm kind of in love with it. Uh, 
Um, I really loved his characterization in um, the where angels fear to tread. I really like it a lot. I, I like him a lot. Um, I like his relationship with his father. Uh, and I just, you know, it's, I, I like it a lot. So I'm going to go back to that. You can expect that. Um, I'll go back to it. So Ellie says, have you ever written a scene in a draft that isn't needed and ends up leading to a side story and said, fuck it, I'm leaving that in? No. Wait. I want to say no, because that's a bad habit I would not encourage. I'm trying to think. Is there ever something that I've left in that was extreme? Like, I have, I have had, there are scenes in a lot of my big works that I would consider absolutely 100% vanity. Um, and that they're not necessarily necessary, but they're fun. And they don't always serve the plot, but they're not a complete distraction either. You know, so, so, like, there's a moment in, um, I think it's Duality. Where Ron finds Harry and Hermione after um, everything's basically said and done. They've gone to visit the portrait of Albus Dumbledore. They've gotten what they need. And they don't need to see Ron. He doesn't need to be seated. And he's having a fit and slut-shaming them. And Harry just sticks him to the side of the shack. The shrieking shack. I think it's duality. Is it duality? It's the one where Dumbledore has been suppressing sentinels and guides. I'm pretty sure it's duality. Um. Anyways... And Hermione throws all these little incarceration rope curses at him and just covers him all up and just leaves like a little piece of red hair sticking out. <laughs> and Harry says, moderation's never been your strong suit. And that's all he says. <laughs> and honestly, that little scene served no purpose. Really, it served no plot purpose whatsoever. And then later it comes up, oh yeah, if you guys are looking for Ron, he's stuck to this, <laughs> he's stuck to the shrieking shack. DM y'all can go out there and get him. So the Southern Magical Cops to get him. He's fine. It's fine. But it was funny and it amused me and I left it in. And that is it. That's all it is. It's, it made me laugh. So I left it in. And so, but most of the time, because I am a plotter, I don't often take in, I don't often go completely off the rails. So it'll be little moments, not big 5,000 word tangents that are completely off the plot. I don't often do that. When I was younger, I let myself do that. But as I've gotten older, I know that I'm going to be really unhappy with the, with the result. And so I just don't do that. So how many times has an act scene or a bit of dialogue led to a new fic? I honestly couldn't even tell you. I mean, because sometimes like there will be a, I can give you a perfect example, um, which is how, <clears throat> I ended up having a piece of dialogue in a rough trade fic that perfectly matched my title. Is it from blue to green or green to blue? I wrote a fic for rough trade. It was a sentinel fic where Rod and where Rodney and John were lovers in college, but were separated because Rodney was online as a guide and um, from it's, it's called from blue to green. Um, and uh, John comes on later as a sentinel and he goes looking for Rodney. And, and Roddy's on Atlantis, so he goes to Atlantis. Um, the title from Blue to Green, which is a reference to their eye color. Rod Rodney has blue eyes and John has green eyes. Um, came from a piece of dialogue from another story that I took out. And isn't it the exact same phrasing that I used in the story or in the title? But I'd made reference in this sentence to the blue and the green. 
um, or like maybe it's along the lines of you know blue met green, um, like as, as reference to their gazes meeting across a, a table because they were listening to somebody talk some bullshit and they were really you know just not here for it. Um, it kind of stuck in my brain, and so later on when I was putting together my rough trade projects for that particular rough trade, um, from blue to green came to mind. So I put it as my title, and then eventually I worked it into the narrative of the story um, when I was writing it for Rough Trade. And I was really kind of pleased with that. So I really enjoyed it. Uh, sometimes dialogue will inspire ideas. And sometimes, like, when you're writing, because you, I don't plot dialogue. You can't, I don't know anybody who plots dialogue. I've seen people who do scene maps, but to actually plot actual dialogue would a little much. I mean, at that point, you might as well just be writing your book, right? Um, so sometimes your characters will, you'll be writing and you'll give your character a piece of dialogue that you didn't, and that you didn't anticipate in the beginning of the scene coming out of their mouth. And you're like, well, what am I supposed to fucking do with that? And it doesn't really work. So you take it out, you stick it in your file, you stick it in your cut file. And there is a line in by theoretically that is a direct result of that where Eddie is having to watch Buck basically do everything he can to be overtly sexual as possible at work and get away with it. Because he's being a cock tease. And because he, he's doing it on purpose, Buck's trying to get Eddie's attention. It's, he's, he is hardcore going at this circumstance, right? And so Buck's out in the, out in the, out in the parking lot watching one of the trucks. And <laughs> Eddie says, and Eddie has this internal dialogue where he thinks that Buck was a goddamn Disney prince. And that's because it had come, that particular line had come up in another story, but it didn't quite work. And so it was like in the back of my mind, and I found a spot for it. The goddamn Disney prince. <laughs> anyway, sometimes... Sometimes dialogue, you know, and, and, and narrative structures, they don't always work in the spot you originally conceived them, so you move them. So that you set them aside, and then you eventually, you can pick them back up. So, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, you know, to to play on the concepts that you write, and kind of, sometimes, like, you know, when you look at the body of your own work, you create a, um... Okay, there actually is a story in the 911 fandom where Buck is a Disney prince at Disneyland. That is adorable. There's a, Julie has a story where he takes the kids to Disney and one of the little girls that he takes to Disney starts calling him Prince Buck. <coughs> yeah, that's her time travel one. It's not available online. Please don't harass her for it. It will get up when it gets up. But, uh, yeah, you know, Eddie's reaction to the Grinder account is pretty funny because Buck is a, you know, Buck is a goddamn snack. So, yeah. <laughs> He's a total snack. <laughs> it's not a good idea. But, yeah, so you, when you look at your body of your work as a writer, you will eventually start to see a repetition of, of themes and concepts, um, that are really kind of intrinsic to your author voice. Uh, and you can't 
you can kind of shape that a little bit. You can take it out if you don't like it. You can remove it after the fact. But sometimes it's just, it's, it's there. It's going to be there. And obviously one of my biggest issues in my whole damn life is the fact that um, I have abandonment issues around the subject of my father. And so it's going to pop up in my work and it does on the regular. And it's, it's just not something that I, um, I used to worry about it. But then I just stopped. I'm like, fuck it. I went to therapy. And sometimes when you're creative and you write, that's part of your therapy as well. You just kind of get it out. You just kind of explore what it would be like if you actually had a decent father. Just saying. You know. So there are two different stories where Buck works at Disneyland. Um, one is, turns out Disney wasn't that far from the truth. And the other one is, Once Upon a Time in Disneyland by Jessica M. Dawn. And they're both on AO3. Um, that's really cute. It's funny because Oliver Stark, the actor who plays um, Evan Buckley on 911, does kind of look like a Disney prince. <laughs> I mean, if he was cast in a live-action Disney prince movie, I would not be surprised at all. It would not surprise me in the least. <laughs> did I get all the questions? Yeah, I did. <clears throat> so apparently there is a third Disney um, Buck works at Disneyland I mean he does He does look like a freaking Disney prince It's ridiculous It's ridiculous um, But I really enjoy the characters on 911 I have already kind of mapped out My rough trade projects for next year Where'd it go? Where'd it go? Um, next year we're doing um, Year of the Unicorn and we're going to have, um, we have the overarching three theme is the Year of the Unicorn. So you're supposed to take your favorite character from your chosen fandom and write a story or, you know, more about him. Because you have the opportunity in each month to write one story or two stories. And so last year, I tried to write two stories for each challenge and I managed to accomplish it in April and in July. I don't think I finished... In July with the second story. I had, to, I had to finish after the fact. But obviously in November I did not get to, fin to, to write Wind Rider at all. Because Warhide took over my life. That's okay though. It happens. It happens. So next year I intend to only write one novel for each ch Rough Trade Challenge. I'm going to give myself a break. Um, and so my in April I'm going to do John Shepard. And in July I'm going to do Eddie Diaz. And in November I'm going to do Harry Potter. And so that's decided. Done deal. And I have some ideas for all three. Um, but when it comes to the themes, you can either take both themes or one theme. So you can do both themes in your book. You can do one theme in your book. Or you can do, you can do two books using each theme. You can, do, you can do one book using each theme. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. So the first one is going to be crossover slash found family. Um, and then in July, we're going to do the sentinel slash natural disaster. Which is a perfect fit for Eddie. And 911. Um, and then in November, we're going to do Harry Potter. Oh, I'm doing Harry Potter. And it's going to be Magical World slash Second Chances. Obviously, Harry Potter is going to be the, you know, the, the, the easiest choice to make. But it isn't the only choice you can make. So don't think you've been boxed in. You can make up your own Magical World, which I did in Intangible. I also did it in Requiem. Um, and so you can make your own. Well, Requiem is not a magical AU. Requiem is... Um, Magical realism, which isn't the same thing. 
Um, I think the intangible kind of skirts the line between magical realism and magical AU. But that's for you to decide. Um, so we're going to do Magical World in November of next year. But I'm going to do Harry Potter because that's easy and I'm not going to stress myself out next year. I'm not stressing myself out this year at all. Requiem, my supernatural solution to saving a baby. I have part three of Requiem in first draft. Um, so there's that. One of my favorite moments in Requiem is when Maddie and um, Daniel show up at the station. And uh, it's the day of the earthquake. And Buck realizes that they're missing something. And he's like, where's my baby? <laughs> he's like, what the fuck? Where is my baby? And she's at daycare. And it's just like, it's like, like he has this moment. And I think that um, it's kind of like this, um, this, this moment of, of parenthood has struck him, you know, because he's like, he's like all casual and shit. Then he realizes that neither one of these two people who had his baby the last time he saw his baby currently have his baby. <laughs> you know? He's like, so it was, it was a, a really cute moment for me when it was like, he had that moment of, of, you know, because I, I think he's still adjusting. Yeah, B's first crush is Eddie. Of, well, of course. Who else would it be? <laughs> I mean, Buck's the help. He's the hired help. <laughs> but I, I really enjoy the novella format I've been doing lately, and I have... Um, another series that I'm currently doing that, um, I'm at 60k on that series. Um, kind of iffy on it. I am halfway through my Inexplicable Baby fic for the Big Moxie in quarter one. Um, it's a 911 fic. Um, I, I, I went with a Wish Baby this time. Uh, so that will be fun. Inexplicable Wish Babies. And we'll, and we'll post the whole month of March, you guys. So. Great. Write it down. Because if you forgot before, you don't want to forget again. Because I have done that where I had an idea I thought was brilliant and I didn't write it down. And I thought, I will never forget this as long as I live because it's so good. And then I immediately forgot it. So if you remember your fic again, you definitely, you definitely have to write it down. I'm so proud and happy for you. At this point, I always know I'm going to forget. So I'm, I'm very invested in... A notebook these days when it comes to that kind of thing I have a, a word document I keep also that I call my idea garden I'm super proud of it I'm really excited and attached cabbage patch babies for those of you who write in um, the Hobbit I think a cabbage patch baby makes it a beautiful inexplicable baby I'm just saying I am not opposed to cabbage patch babies I am opposed to the Durans all dying so I'm just let you know that I think Thorin should be around to witness the emergence of his Cabbage Patch baby. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. I actually have a fic where the summary is, as it turns out, Thorin Oakenshield knows exactly how hobbits make their babies. And the premise is, is that he's married Bilbo and they're living in the mountain and he keeps waiting and hoping that Bilbo will ask if they can plant a garden. Because he's super excited about the idea. And he's he's ready to plant a garden. He's got a, he's got a plan already in place. We're going to get this done. And um, 
I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I just I have the whole idea in my head. Yay, it's written down. I I think it'd be really charming. Most of the time, your Thorin has no idea, and so it's it's it'd be really interesting considering he did live in the Blue Mountains all that time and he worked in Bree that he knows exactly how that happens and he's just kind of waiting and hoping that Bilbo will will tell him that that, that they can plant a garden. I think that'd be really adorable. One of my favorite moments in Small Magic is when Bilbo is chastising Harry about Harry pouting like a like a baby and saying that he doesn't really he doesn't really have time or the energy to go out in the yard and dig a cradle big enough for him to sit <laughs> for him to lay in and it would be a waste of his time. <laughs> Gotta get my amusement somewhere. But yeah, yeah. It'd be a waste of my time. And a lot of fucking work. I do like it when characters are allowed to be smart and competent. I, I, I have a competence kink. I like it a lot. Um, I do like the idea of, of Thorin just being very hopeful that um, that they're compatible enough and that um, and that Bilbo loves him enough that they can have a heart baby. They can have a garden baby. I just, I, I find that very charming. Um, <clears throat> what you need to do, Mrs. Not, is have a notebook just for your ideas. Um, like, I have notebooks all over my house that I do, I, I do plotting in. But if I have an idea, I go specifically to my idea notebook and I only write my ideas in that book. That way, I, I can't misplace it. And I try to also transfer my idea from my notebook into my idea file in my Word document as soon as I can. The Vine Tattoo Hobbit one is Flowers for Yavanna. And that is by... Is that, is that by Soeba? But the Vine Tattoo is that it's a female hobbit and she finds... It's a female Bilbo and she finds a spell in the library of Erebor, right? And it's a hobbit spell. And it's basically it's a prayer to Yavanna for kids. And she recites it. Yeah, it's called Flowers for uh, Flowers of Yavanna by Soeba. S-O-A-B-A. And she, uh, she sprouts a vine tattoo. And it tells her that she can, that she can plant babies. And that she'll be able to have children that way. Because she can't have them the other way. Um, hobbits have... Like, they could have, like, natural childbirth, like, you know, but she's infertile, um, and Thorin doesn't care, but his, his council is starting to ask questions because they assumed that there would be many children because hobbits are known to be quite fertile, except Bella isn't, or whatever her name is in that, in that thing, um, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very sweet story, I like it a lot, it's called Flowers of Yavanna by Soeba. it's actually the first Kaios Patrick I remember reading. It wasn't the first one but published, but it's the first one I remember. Of course, the original Cabbage Patch fic is, and I don't care if you agree with me or not, Lord of the Rings. Because the original Cabbage Patch babies are the orcs. It's true. I know it's difficult. I know it's difficult for you guys to, see, to, to take that on board and accept it, but it's true. <laughs> Rotten-ass cabbages. But, nevertheless... Don't say that. I love sauerkraut. I don't want. I don't want to think about orcs while I'm, while I'm eating sauerkraut. Um, but yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll I'll accept the canned stuff. The garbage pail kids. <laughs> I love sauerkraut. Oh my god, I can eat sauerkraut right out of the jar if it's Bubby's. I have a specific sauerkraut that I enjoy. It's called Bubby's. 
I will accept no substitutions. Um, it is fucking delicious. And it is my favorite. I mean, I have to, I have to like make myself not do it, fairy. I'm serious. Normally what I'll do is I'll put some in a bowl, though. I won't actually eat out of the jar because it's not only me who eats it in the house. If it was just me eating it, I would definitely eat it out of the jar. I try not to do that to my husband. Although it is fermented. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It is live. Um, very good stuff, though. Bubby's. Amazing. Best sauerkraut I've ever had in my life outside of my grandmother's. So if you can't get homemade, get Bubby's. I kind of always thought Lobelia was, was, like, born in a patch of really, like, Venus flytraps or something. It was just mean flowers. Or stinky ones, like corpse lilies. Yeah, what hobbit would plant their baby under a, a corpse lily? <laughs> One who woke up and chose violets. That's who. <laughs> okay. Um... It's 12.30. Been going for a while. Do you guys have any other questions? I love the Addams Family. Um, one of my favorite fics um, is Harvest Addams in the Harry Potter fandom. Um, Harry kills <laughs> Harry kills the Dursleys as, as a small child. And Morticia <laughs> and Gomez get lured to the house by his darkness. And they take him for their own. <laughs> It's called Harvest Adams by Thumbi, or also the Kyaru, C-Y-A-R-U is the author name. It's very good. It's very good. It's very funny. I enjoyed it a lot. Lots of fun. I was thinking about other works that I had um, started out small that became big. When I wrote Heart of the Lion, it wasn't intended to be as big as it became. I mean, I... I had expectation of it being around 70,000 words. It ended up being 134,000. Um, Harry Potter works that started out small that turned huge on me. I have some unfinished Harry Potter works. Um, that I think one of the reasons why uh, they aren't um, finished is because I underplotted. Most of my Harry Potter works have all have exceeded my word count, my original op thought of word count by a lot. Um, I would say that my most on-point word count estimation would be The Absence of War. I think I was like 10k off what I anticipated it would be. But most of the time, I'm like, whatever. <laughs> the thing about Harry Potter is that there is, the Harry Potter world is large. But also, it's profoundly and deeply underexplored in canon. So, <coughs> if you're going to write, if you're going to explore mature concepts and um, higher order magic and ritual magic and adult circumstances, you have to expand your world building by a lot. It is rare that I ever estimate a Harry Potter fic is going to be under 50k. I have some tiny little shorts for Harry Potter that were written for challenges that were not plotted. They were just like a little sentence prompt that I made myself. 
um, in response to like a word prompt or a picture prompt from from Rough Trade, and that's where all those little shorts from Harry Potter came from. But when my my big ideas for Harry Potter, my shortest work in progress for Harry Potter is twenty five thousand words. So it's not really my the thing about Harry Potter is like when I'm when I have an idea for Harry Potter, most of the time it's huge. Um, so uh, one of the stumbling blocks I had last year was Soul Magic for for my for July's Rough Trade. Um, I forced myself into a box for that particular story to keep it in a word count, and it was profoundly uncomfortable. I wish, looking back on it, I just let myself do what I wanted. Because I took out some stuff to keep it under the word count that was for the challenge. Um, and I regret it. Um, I, uh, the way it's currently written, I couldn't do anything about Soul Magic without changing the third book, which I've already put up on. And I'm, I'm just not going to do that. But if I had it to do again, I would not have made the changes I originally made to Soul Magic. And it would have ended up being around 70,000 words. So it's a little, it was a little irritating, um, what I did to myself when it comes to that, because soul magic, um, was only 25 K. So I basically lopped 50 K off of it plot wise. And most of those plot points ended up in the third book, which I can't remember the title of only time, only time. Um, because I had this structure that I wanted to work with for the theme and the word count um, with with it. So I did it, but I'm not thrilled with the structure of the series because of it. I won't change it because I'm, I'm, I'm done with that part. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm already zero drafting book four. So I don't want to invest that kind of cha time um, to change it. Yeah, Lantia Legacy. Um is what happens when you let two betas. So here's what happened. I wrote a little story. I think it was originally like 30k. And I sent it to Lady Holder and Chris King. And they were really excited about it. And they liked it a lot. And they asked me like 25 billion questions. And in answering those questions. I added 20k to it. Ish. Ish. And sex. Because there was no sex in it. In fact... You can thank Chris King for all the sex that's in the first Lantean Legacy book, which is No Enemy Within. Because when I wrote it, there was no sex whatsoever. There wasn't even a blowjob. Nothing. But after I did um, the second draft, I did a third and a fourth, I think even a fifth draft of No Enemy Within. Because the, I took some stuff out um, and trimmed it up. Cause I, and it's really tight and not as long as you think it is. I have a lot of people think that that story is like 100K. And they get really surprised that it's not. Um, it's 66. Um, but it originally was like 30. Uh, so it got doubled-ish. <coughs> between the first draft and the fifth draft. Um, and book two is 58K. Now book two was a long time coming. Because I had actually written book two while Chris and Lady Holder had... The second or third draft of No Enemy Within. But when I gave them in the silence, they were both, both of them, you don't have to say you're sorry. They were both kind of disappointed by my time skip. And they wanted to know the in-between. 
And because I did not set a boundary that you need to set for yourself as an author, it's your responsibility, not your beta, not your alpha's responsibility, it's yours. I didn't set a boundary for myself. I let their curiosity get the best of me. And then five years passed before book two came out because I realized I tried. I tried to write a different book two in, in response to their curiosity. And it's, it's perfectly okay to be curious. It's perfectly okay to ask those questions. But I was the one who got wrapped around the axle about it. And I tried to write book two, a new book two, like three or four times before I gave up and just said, okay, you know what? No, um, in the songs is my, is my book two. Um, and so that's just something that, that happens. I mean, it happens in, in fandom. It happens in pro circles. It, it's just, it's just something that happens. Sometimes somebody will ask you a question and it will completely and totally derail what you had planned. Sometimes it's a good consequence and sometimes it's not. And you don't know what you're going to get until you get there. But again, I would say wholeheartedly that that circumstance was my fault because I was the one that allowed myself to go completely off the rails about the subject. And also I spiraled out around several other books in the series. Um, and just, I just, I let it get too big in my brain. And sometimes if you let an idea get too big in your brain, it's hard to get it out. Does that make sense? It's like you create this ginormous thing and the, the idea of, of, getting it completely out and and also in the way you envision it is impossible so i actually zero drafted at the time i was calling them outlines but i've since learned that i've never really outlined in my life just like i've never actually zero drafted in my life i mean not not zero drafted but pants i never pants and i never actually outlined uh, <laughs> i've been zero drafting my whole life and didn't even know it so um i actually zero drafted five books for the Lantean legacy series and I'd like to go back and write them. But what I've also learned um, in my 15, almost 15 years in fandom um, is that it's important with your hobby writing that you do what makes you happy. And don't allow others to put expectations on you. It's okay for them to have their expectations. It's not okay for them to expect you to serve their expectations. If, if that makes sense. Because everybody around you is going to have expectations of you. Some of them are reasonable and some of them are not. We expect you not to kill people. That's reasonable. We expect you to put clothes on. In most circumstances, that's 100% reasonable. Those are reasonable expectations. But sometimes people put expectations on you that are completely and utterly unreasonable. And... In fandom, it's practically a crucible. It happens in such a narrow space that it can be overwhelming, honestly. And then you're like, it stops being fun. So, ooh, ooh, sorry. <clears throat> sorry. I'm sorry if I made you yawn. I'm so sorry. Um, if, um, if, for me, I have to write what inspires me and what makes me happy. Because if I'm not making myself happy, then what's the fucking point? I mean, there is no fucking point, especially with a hobby. You know, like in professional writing, you can say, well, you know, I really don't want to do this, but I'm getting paid. And that's a motivator. 
nothing quite motivates you like your like your ability to pay your rent. Okay, I just just putting it out there. That's motivation, but that motivation doesn't exist in fandom. So you have to ask yourself, you know, what does motivate you? Ooh. Sorry, I don't think it's actually that I'm tired. I think that I probably need to use my inhaler. Weirdly. Yeah, definitely write for yourself and fuck the rest. Absolutely. That's, a, that's an excellent New Year's resolution. Um, because, honestly, the truth is, is you can't make everybody happy with your writing. But you can make yourself happy with your writing. 100% of the time. So, do that. <coughs> yeah, I definitely need to use my inhaler. Wow. Anyways. Adult onset asthma. I do not recommend it. I had my first asthma attack in my twenties. Ugly business. I thought I was having a heart attack. <laughs> I think that um, you know this year uh, I I had a really awesome, insanely pro productive year last year. I am precariously close to five million words. I am four million seven hundred. Oh, I didn't add today's total. I am. 4,798-ish thousand words. So, I am definitely going to go over 5 million words this year and, and publish works on my site. That will be fun. Um, I'm excited. It's, it's great. I think that as a writer, um, I want to, um, to leave a, a, a legacy of a thoughtful storytelling. I, I, I think that's what I want. Um, yeah. That's, that's my resolution. To be a thoughtful storyteller. And also, I'm writing a million words this year. I've decided. That's probably a mistake. That's just, you know, I think that's, how many words is that a month? <laughs> just what the... That's 83,000 words a month. That could be a little ridiculous. I want to write a million words this year, yes. Um, it's not my tiny goal. My tiny goal is and always will be 500 words a day. If I'm writing 500 words a day, I am not getting a million words in a year. But I think that while I have my tiny goal, it's really super important to have your tiny goal and to stick with it and to um, not beat yourself up with a giant-ass goal. That I might have a lofty aspiration of 1 million words for this year. So we would need to write... I'm already 6K into the year, so we would need to write 2,740 words a day to get a million words in the year. So a lofty aspiration. Yeah, I don't want to call it a goal, because um, a goal implies failure if you don't make it. So just it's just a lofty aspiration. Yeah, absolutely. But I have gotten close to a million words before. In fact, I might have written a million words in a year before and not even really kept track of it. I'm sure I probably have. But that, that's my goal this year. I've got uh, four big mocktees to write. I've got three rough trade events. Um, I have um, the layer challenge at for every season. Um, we're doing Inexplicable Babies first. No, that's big, that, that, that's big moxie. I think we're doing Original Winter. We're, we're in Original Winter now. I need to go over and set up a post for that. For... Um, the every season layer challenge, um, which means 
I can write Wind Rider for Original Winter. <coughs> that would definitely qualify. I have a whole bunch of original characters in that. So I'm going to tell Wind Rider from the perspective, from the POV of Ragnarok and Rizel. Um, so yeah, I could totally do that. That will be fun. But we're also see we have what are the other ones? I know we have Sapphic Summer, but I'm forgetting the one in the middle. No, the 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 the, the layer challenge. <clears throat> The quantum bang is always a fix-it. To every season, we have original winter, which is an original character. We have alternative spring, which is gender and sexuality expressions outside of the binary. And then in summer, we have sapphic summer. Um, and then in fall, we have vibrant autumn, which is a character of color. Um, so we've got plenty of options and challenges that we can meet. The quantum bang. Um, I, I have a project underway for the quantum bang. I don't know... I have two. I'm on the fence about the length of one. I'm on the fence about the fix-it prospect of the other one. So I'm still working that. And the Big Moxie, um, we're doing Inexplicable Babies. And then we have... Fuck me. Um, not an invitation. Let's uh, see. Um, so we have... Quarter one, we have Inexplicable Babies. Quarter two, we have Fusion Crossover. Quarter three, we have Friends to Lovers. And quarter four, we have Time Travel. So I have plenty of challenge options to keep me busy this year. Plus, I've got two or three fix that I'm not sure will actually fit in a challenge that I'm probably going to write too. So I think a million words is perfectly fine as a lofty aspiration. We're not going to call it a goal. <laughs> <coughs> Let's see. The Every Season link is here. For those of you who are curious about it, we are currently in Original Winter. Um, I will set up a link page for that when I get up in the morning. Um, and for the Every Season Challenge, the Layer Challenge, you can um, links that are like for the whole quarter, like from January to March, all the way to the end of March. Any stories that are published that fit the theme can go on the list. And the Quantum Bang. The theme doesn't change. It's basically fixed it. We have expanded the methods by which you can reach your 50k. And so I can, I can do a series. You can do a novella series. You can do an episode series. Um, you can do a series of novel like I said, no novellas. Uh, each set has a different set of rules about how you can accomplish your 50k. Um, so you can check, check that out on quantumbang.org. And um, of course, signups for that have already ended. So we're in the writing phase now. And the next sign-up period for Quantum Bang 2024 um, will begin on August 1st. But if you, guys don't, if you guys don't have any more questions, my chest is a little tight, so I think I might need to use my nebulizer, which I have not had to use in a very long time. The layer is actually just a theme, Daisy. Like, um, with Original Winter, your goal is to write a, an original character. With Alternative Spring, your 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 goal is to write a character who is outside the binary, um, sexuality-wise or gender-wise, um, and that they're not part of the binary system. Like they they're not he or she, or they're not gay or straight. That they're you know outside that binary perspective as your main character. And, and Sapphic Summer is um, lesbian romance. Or just lesbian stories. It doesn't have to be a romance. I'm just a romance writer. And then Vibrant Autumn, you have to do, you have to pick out, you should pick out a character of color to write about. Um, 
this and these and this challenge is about opening up your horizons as a writer and exploring um, things you don't normally explore. So we, so we try to pick out themes that were underrepresented in fandom. I honestly think if you're someone who gets bent around the axle when it comes to deadlines, that absolutely start your quantum bang for 2024 now. And then by the time you sign up, you're done and you don't have to worry about it. Absolutely. Because the whole point isn't to stress you out and make you unhappy. It's about challenging you as a writer to explore um, yourself and your concepts and to make um, just, you know. Uh, if you send me a, uh, a, a DM, Daisy, and I will check for you. But not right now because I'm super tired. But I will check tomorrow if you will send me a DM so I won't forget. Um, <clears throat> anyways, I'm going to let you guys go because I am... I really honestly probably do need to use my nebulizer because I'm getting really tight in my chest and that is bizarre because I haven't actually had to use my inhaler since July. I'm fortunate that I got a new one recently because my other one had expired and I didn't even notice. Um, because I hadn't been using it. But anyways, you guys have a fantastic evening. Thank you for hanging out with me. I hope that, um, this was informative and at the very least entertaining. And I shall catch you later. 